Jonah chapter 4 is where we're going to be at today. Jonah chapter 4, my original intention was to cover all of chapter 4 today, but we're only going to cover the first four verses. And so we'll finish Jonah next week. Um, and sometimes that takes place, you know, where you, you sort of uh, begin with a thought and then it ends up a little bit different. But Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to be at today. My name's Cody. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my privilege to be able to open the Bible with you, to be able to just look at what God's Word has to say. And, and I look forward to this time because really here at Redemption, we believe that we've gathered together not to hear the words of men, but to hear the Word of God. And so we expect fully that something significant and supernatural happens in these moments where God would speak. And so I hope and pray that you're hearing and listening for the voice of God, not just for me to say some things and to try to keep your attention, but instead that the Holy Spirit would minister to you through His Word in a supernatural, significant way. Here's a question I have for you. When is the last time you had a real freak-out moment? Like, not you were scared, but you just lost it. Like, you had one of those, like, I just, I just maybe it was on the way to church this morning, you know, and you're like, I just... There's this guy in front of me, and you know I don't know what it was, but uh, you know, red-faced, blood boiling, adrenaline rushing. You just lost it over something. Tragically, you know, all of the pressures of our culture and society over the last couple of years have brought this to sort of a, a boiling point where people are on edge almost all the time. Actually, this week, I don't know if you saw this, but this week in Pennsylvania at a Golden Corral, uh, 40 people were in a brawl. Uh, like, just went bananas at Golden Corral, right? A apparently, what happened was they were in line, you know, where there's the cooks that can cook some of the stuff for you, and this guy got a steak, and the guy thought it was his, and then they just started throwing chairs and tables. Like, it, it went crazy, absolutely insane. Yeah, you see, when people feel like they're losing control over things, a couple of things can happen. You, people either, they sort of just shrink back and, and they surrender uh, or fight to regain a sense of control. And both of these responses can be absolutely wrong. Both of these can be absolutely wrong responses. You know, the idea of, of shrinking back can be wrong because uh, a, the wrong kind of surrender actually becomes despair where it's, it's, you're just not engaged. You're just sort of disconnected. Uh, but also, the idea of control is, can be wrong because control is actually an illusion. You're not in control of really anything. And so we have, we are, we're grasping for this. And so none of us are in control of, of anything in our lives. And so the right position for us to take is actually humble submission to God. That he's always right and his way is always the right way. So that's really what we're going to be looking at together in these first four verses of Jonah chapter 4. It's this, that God is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He really draws a line in the sand for us to draw us into this type of relationship. That, that he's not into playing, you know, in between. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to be kind of on the side or sometimes. It's either you're all in with him or you're not actually in. That's really the way that God deals with relationship with us. So let's read Jonah 4, 1 through 4, and then we'll break it down together. It says this, Jonah 4, 1 says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? 
Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning as we gather together that you would help us to hear your voice. That, Lord, you would tune our hearts to be able to understand what it is that you have to say. God, we recognize and realize that you are not disconnected. You are not distant. You're not just out in space somewhere. Uh, you're not just, uh, just this uh, fable in a book, but that you are the true and living God. And that you speak to us through your word and that we understand you as you reveal yourself through your word. So God, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to understand, and give us minds to follow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now this morning as we break, we look at Jonah 4, 1 through 4, we're going to look at it in three parts together today, all right? The first part is verse 1, Jonah's displeasure with God. The second one, verse 2, Jonah's doctrine about God. And then 3 through 4, Jonah's dethroning of God. Now, just kind of looking back at where we've been in the book of Jonah, chapters 2 and 3, what we find is that God actually justifies Jonah and the people of Nineveh in the exact same way. And, and if you're not sure what the word justified means, I would say just look back at uh, uh, our previous uh, sermons in uh, Jonah. We went through, uh, last week, we went through a large portion of that idea of the word justification and what that means biblically. And it's such a big deal. But God does this. He justifies Jonah and he justifi justifies the people of Nineveh in the exact same way. It's by grace through their faith. It's his grace through their faith. And that's actually the gospel message. That, that's what we see happening in the book of Jonah, that God reaches into these rebellious, wayward people. He reaches into their lives and he pulls them toward him. Why? Because of his grace through their faith. You see, the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. Sometimes we tend to think of Christianity in terms of good advice. You know, here's five tips on how to be a better something, or here's a, a better way to live your life, or if you really want to be happy, then do these things that are found as principles in the Bible. And while none of those are necessarily bad things or false things, they're not the gospel. You see, good advice says if you do this stuff, then you can have a better life. Good news is I've done this for you. And that's the gospel message, that, that Jesus looks at you and me in our fallenness, in our depravity, in my, our helplessness, in our hopelessness, and he reaches into our mess to pull us out of it. You see, believing the good news of Jesus is the gospel. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. You see, there, there, there is no good advice wrapped up within the gospel. It's not if you just knew these things and just applied these principles, then life would be better for you. No, it's actually good news. Because of Jesus, he changes everything. And then those principles actually have some weight and value in our lives. You see, not only is the gospel not good news, or it's good news, not good advice, but there's actually only one gospel. There's only one gospel. There's not a different gospel based on your race, based on your status, based on your gender. There is no different gospel based on where you live on the planet or where you grew up or whatever. There's only one gospel. There are lots and lots and lots of different kinds of religions, but there's only one gospel. The truth of the matter is that we need 
Jesus. You, you see, we tend to, as people, divide over things like race or status or gender, but the gospel unites. Here, here's how it actually says it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, keep that verse up there for just a second. I want to I point something out. Notice here that there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. That's a division of race. There isn't any of that in Christ. There is no, I'm from, you know, I'm from this you know, area, I have this much melanin. It doesn't matter. There is no status, slave or free. There's no status in Christ. I, I make this much money, I live in this neighborhood, I drive this kind of truck because I'm a man or whatever. You know, like there's, there's no status in Christ, Right? There, there isn't that. There is no gender. There is no male and female. Now, that doesn't, now you have to qualify that, right? In our world today, you got to qualify that. Yeah, gender's fluid. No. What it means is that there isn't, because you're a man or a woman doesn't mean you're closer to God. That's what it's talking about. There's no divisions based on uh, your, your gender. It's not like, well, I'm a man. I'm the head of my house. My wife is beneath me. No, not at all. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. That's what this is talking about. All of the ways that we divide, that we t tend to like stack things up, the gospel unites all of that. That's the amazing power of Jesus. He's so tremendous. You see, Jesus saves us by his grace through your faith. That's how it works. It's the, it's the idea that it's his gracious gift that is taken by the hand of your faith. It, it, it's like this. If I can, I can offer you my phone, say, hey, I would like to give you my phone, and, and I can hand it out to you, and I can say, it's your phone. This is now yours. But it doesn't become yours until you take it. You actually have to take it. You have to receive it. Jesus can stand all day long offering you his gracious gift of salvation, offering you uh, unity with God offering you eternal life, offering you the kingdom of God living within your heart at this present day so that you can be victorious over sin, victorious over temptation. You can move forward with power and purity in your life. And yet if you don't take it, it's not actually yours. You have to reach out and take what God is giving you. And the way you do it is by faith, by faith, by placing your trust fully in him. So let's look at this first piece together. Jonah's displeasure with God, verse 1. It says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. All right, so obviously we're in the middle of something. When the word but is the beginning of the thought, obviously we are in the, the, in the middle of something taking place. And the it that we're talking about, you see, but it displeased Jonah. It, the it, is what takes place in chapter 3, verse 10. Let me read that for you real quick. It says this, Then God saw their works, speaking of the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So, so God stops the disaster that is coming upon the people of Nineveh, and God chooses to give them grace. And what is Jonah's response? He's mad about it. 
He doesn't want anything to do with it. That God relents from judgment and then experiences the greatest revival in human history. Historians tell us, theological, theological historians tell us that it's somewhere between four and six million people that are in this city and, and they all repent. All of them come to the Lord. All of them turn from their sin. All of them reach out for, the, for God. And there's this tremendous revival that takes place, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. You see, the people of Nineveh willfully humbled themselves before God. They cast themselves on his mercy. And Jonah is the only preacher in human history to be mad at his success, right? Like he's mad that he preached and that they all repented. Think, Think of it like this. Imagine this for a moment. Let's say you feel the Lord stir you up. You're going to be a missionary, and some of you are like, say it ain't so. Okay, this is, it's theoretical. Maybe some of you, that is what God's doing. But let's say God's, God stirs you up to be a missionary. And we plan, and we pray, and we prepare. And a few months down the road, we send you to this foreign country, okay? And you show up day one, day one. And everybody you talk to immediately turns to God. That, that, that God's already been working on their hearts and then all the, you barely get the words out of your mouth. Hey, Jesus loves you. Like, I know. And they all repent, all of them, okay? And so everybody you talk to is like this. And then the next day, the same thing happens. And that happens for three straight days until you can't find someone who hasn't heard the gospel and repented. Imagine that for a minute. That's mind-blowingly crazy, you, if you were to call us and say, you'll never believe what happened, we would be rejoicing with you. We wouldn't be mad at you, right? Like, what did you do? Like, how did you mess up those people's lives? No, we would be so excited. We'd be overjoyed that God moved in such a mighty and powerful way. We would be ecstatic. And yet Jonah, he's displeased. Now, displeased, the word displeased there, that Jonah's displeased, it's a little more, that, it's more than just a little bit frustrated. You know, like when I go to In-N-Out and uh, I... <laughs> And because why not? When I go to In-N-Out and I order my burger and they put tomatoes on it because they're evil, I get a little displeased. Like, ah, that's probably not a good choice. Or like when Jerry and uh, Fernando look at themselves in the mirror and they go, still no beard, like a little, <laughs> little displeased, right? <laughs> There's some of that. Okay, so it's, this word is not that, okay? This isn't like, oh man, bummer. You know, it's not one of those things. This, the word displeased is literally shaking uncontrollably. That's what it means. It's, it's the, the idea of, uh, the, you know, not only the shaking uncontrollably, but it results in, see, at the end of verse four, anger. He became angry. This is red-faced, blood-boiling, Hulk-smash, raging inferno kind of mad. This is off the handle. This is irrational. This is uncontrolled. Also, the idea of became angry, it's the idea of, of like kindling a fire. That's what the word means. So it's, it's, it's the idea that he's built this fire of his displeasure, and now he's stoking the flames. It's not like this emotion that overcame him, but instead it's this active decision. That he's saying, I want to be mad, and I'm mulling over it, and I'm getting more and more angry, and it's this willful choice that he's making toward his anger. It's it's absolutely unhinged. Now, Jonah's angry for at least two reasons. Number one, Jonah's room has heart, excuse me, Jonah's, Jonah's room, Jonah's heart has room, let me flip those words, Jonah's heart has room for um, the hatred of the Assyrians 
more than he has room for God's love for the lost. He hates the Assyrians, if you remember from our first study together. This isn't just like a, I don't feel like going there, it's out of the way, it's, it's hot over there in the summer. I don't know what, what excuses may come to your mind as far as what, what it is. But for Jonah, he hated the Assyrians more than he had God's love for the lost. You see, Jonah placed his citizenship in Israel above his citizenship in heaven. He forgot that he was primarily a citizen of heaven. He thought he was a citizen of Israel. And because the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel, he hated them. Warren Wearsby says it like this, Jonah was a narrow-minded patriot who saw Assyrians only as a dangerous enemy to destroy, not as a company of repentant sinners to be brought to the Lord. He got it reversed. He got it backwards. He put the wrong things first. Not only do we see that Jonah has hatred in his heart, but secondly, uh, the reason that he's angry is because Jonah's expectations of God went unmet. That he had a certain expectation of God. These are evil people. You kill them, God. That's what you do. You destroy them. They, They don't deserve any of your grace. They don't deserve any of your mercy. They deserve your judgment. And God failed to deliver. And so Jonah got angry. See, here's the thing. Unsubmitted expectations are premeditated resentment. When you have expectations, everybody has expectations, right? If you say, I just went with no expectations, you're lying, right? Everyone has expectations about everything, okay? You're going through life with expectations, but if they're not submitted to God, then all you're doing is you're setting yourself up for resentment. You're setting yourself up to say, God, you should have done what I thought. And if I, if I was God, then God help us. You know, if it, any of us were in his position. No, that would be absolutely terrible. That would be absolutely terrible. We don't have any idea what, uh, what to do. We have no, no ability to see forward. And so he has these unsubmitted expectations. In reality, Jonah forgot that God's pronouncement of judgment is always an invitation to repentance. That's what he forgot. When God pronounces judgment, that if, if you go this way, judgment is coming. That's not, a, that's not a threat from God. It's not that he has, enjoys this. The Bible tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. All right, so God isn't, it's not like God wants to do this, but it's a warning to say, if you continue this way, this is the result. It's an invitation toward repentance. It's an invitation to abandon our way and to say, God, I will go your way. Now, there are three potential outcomes when God pronounces judgment based upon the heart of a person. Depending on where our hearts are, God's judgment could have a different kind of result. Number one is God's punishment. If there is hard-heartedness, if there is rebellion, if there is, I will go my way, I don't want anything to do with your way, God, then punishment comes. That, That it's just this no repentance, there's this full weight of God's judgment that rests upon the souls of people who will rebel against the things of God. That's one option. Secondly is God's discipline. The idea of God's discipline, that if, if repentance comes in, if I choose to abandon my way and say, all right, I'm not going to go that way, we could get a modified judgment in the form of discipline. That God still brings something, but, but it's, it's, it's not quite as bad as it could have been. Here, here's an example. Remember when Jonah got swallowed by a big fish? This is God's discipline of Jonah. God is bringing the 
pain of Jonah's decisions as a consequence to get him to abandon his way and to go God's way. Or like David, when David uh, in 2 Samuel was, uh, um, uh, you know, he had, some, he had sin and the consequences of his sin left him with no good choices. He says this, 2 Samuel 24, 13 through 14. So Gad came to David and asked him, will you choose three years of famine throughout your land, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of severe plague throughout your land? Think this over and decide your, uh, what answer I will give uh, to give the Lord who sent me. So uh, David's reply, I'm in a desperate situation, David replied to Gad, but let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, do not let us fall into human hands. You see, David was still going to experience pain as a result of the consequence of his sin, and yet it was modified. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't full punishment. It wasn't a full weight of God's judgment against his sin. It was a modified version. Or thirdly, one of the, thing, one of the things that God could do is not just his punishment or his discipline, but God's relenting. That through repentance, you can avoid any and all judgment altogether. God is that good. Even though I deserve judgment against my sinfulness, God can still cause me to avoid all of it. You see, God has right to judge sin, and he should judge sin, and he must judge sin if he's going to be good. That he has to. God can't get away from judging sin. It's not like God is this nice grandpa in heaven, and he just kind of goes, he winks at you and says, it's not that big of a deal. No, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. You know how big of a deal it is? Jesus went to the cross and bled and died for it. So it's not like God just passes over and says, ah, you just do you, no big deal. That is not at all the way that God views sin. No, it cost Jesus everything so that he could give you his goodness instead of the judgment you deserve. What a tremendous, amazing God. You see, I don't receive judgment though I, uh, though I deserve it, but I do experience discipline Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, because when you are the child of God, he disciplines you because he loves you. Secondly, not only do we see Jonah's displeasure with God, but we see Jonah's doctrine about God in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says this, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, an abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Now this in verse 2 and part of it in verse 3 is Jonah's second recorded prayer in this book. And it could not be more different than the first one. If you remember his first prayer, it came from a broken heart in the belly of this fish. And now this second prayer comes from an angry heart toward the Lord. Now this angry prayer of Jonah has some good things about it. And it has some bad things about it. It's good because it's theologically sound. When you look through what he says about, about God, there is some deep theology woven into the prayer of Jonah. We'll get into more of that here in just a minute. And, and part, part of the soundness of his theology, though, is that he doesn't hide his emotion from God. That's one of the things I think is commendable about Jonah. That he comes to God fully bearing his heart just a full display of his anger and his emotion and how this situation is making him feel. He's not trying to like put on this, you know, this church version. You know, when you show up at church and you're like, you know, you're driving to church and you're mad about something and you're yelling at something. And then you pull up and then you walk in and you're like, hi, brother. And you're like, I've got a big smile. 
Not that, right? He's not talking to God that way. He's letting God fully in on what's actually there. He's learned I can't hide anything from God. Remember the fish part, right? He tried to hide from God. He ended up in the belly of a fish. So he knows from experience I can't hide from God. And so he's fully letting his emotion come out before the things of the Lord. But here's where it's wrong. Here's where it's bad. It's bad because this prayer is actually an indictment against God. He's accusing God of being wrong. That he comes to God with all of his emotion, and his emotion is overriding his logic, and he's coming to the conclusion that God must be wrong because I feel bad about this. It's, it's pretty wild. It's a pretty crazy thing, but it's not uncommon for us to do as well. That we get into these situations where our emotions are running, and then we can accuse God of being wrong. You see, Jonah is real with God, but his insolence, arrogance, and pride are so thick. Here's the thing. Submission must follow admission. It's right for you to admit what you're feeling to God, but that's where most people stop. They just say, God, here's what I'm feeling. I'm just being real with you, God. But there's no repentance wrapped up within that. There's no, there's no saying, now I'm going to submit to you in your way. Now I'm going to say, God, your way is the right way, even though I feel this way. Even though I, I want this, I'm going to say, you are right and you are correct. You see, it's possible to know the right answer and still be wrong. That's exactly where Jonah's at. He's got the right theology. He knows all the right answers and he's still wrong. Why? Because there's a complete unwillingness to admit that he could be wrong, and by implication, he's accusing God of being the one who's wrong. Now, there are, in verse 2, there are five theological ideas that Jonah accurately knows about God. Notice he says there in verse, uh, verse 2, so he prayed to the Lord, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said? Now, when he says, Ah, Lord, I don't think it's, Ah, Lord. I think he's like, Ah, Lord. You know, like teeth gritting, just... Remember, he's seething with anger toward God. Now, this is some weird stuff to pray in anger. You're good and compassionate and relenting from harm. Like, what? whoa, bro, like, your tone and your words aren't matching. You know, like, what is going on with this guy? But, but notice he says there, uh, he said, I knew, he says, oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? I knew you, this is what you were going to do, God, basically is what he's saying. Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are. There's some things that he knows. And what Jonah seems to be quoting here is what God told Moses in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6, here's what God says to Moses. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Doesn't that sound so similar? to what Jonah says. It's like he's quoting this verse back to God. I know this is who you are, God. You see, it's tragic to claim to know God, but your attitude and actions prove you only know about him. It's possible to know facts and, and statistics. I could tell you facts and statistics. My wife is this tall. She has this color hair. She has this color eyes. She likes this in her coffee. I can tell you facts and statistics about her. And, did I say that word right? Statistics? Slow down a little bit. And I can tell you all those things, but it's possible for me to know that and not know her. And the, the difference is the difference between knowing in your head and knowing in your heart. It's, it's, it's the 18 inches from your head to your heart to, to know about 
and to know. Now, the first thing that he says about God is, notice there uh, in uh, verse 2, for I know that you are a gracious, that God is gracious. This word is compassionate. It's actually linked to another Hebrew word uh, that uh, is associated with the idea of the tender love of a mother for her baby. You know when, when a mom is just loving that little baby? I, my wife is, I call her the baby whisperer. I don't know what it is, but there's something about little babies, and she's so tremendously amazing with these little babies that there, there's this, this overwhelming joy and love and patience, even though all they do is scream and poop and stuff. You know, that's all they do. But there's this love she has. And here's the crazy part. The baby can do nothing to deserve the love. There's no, there's no way, what are they going to do? Like cook you some food and bring it to you? They just lay there. They cry in the middle of the night and wake you up so you can't sleep. And, you know, uh, all sorts of crazy things. And so there's nothing they could do. There's, it can only be given to those who don't deserve it. What an amazing idea that gracious, graciousness is. The second idea that he has there in verse uh, 2 is the idea that God is merciful. You see that there? For, uh, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. Merciful is the idea of to take pity on. That's the idea of merciful there. It describes uh, the love of a superior for an inferior. That's the idea of to take pity on. Skip Heisig says it like this. God takes pity on people. In other words, God doesn't just love good people, people that have it all together. God isn't attracted by strength as much as by weakness. So God doesn't love good people only. God loves people who make messes out of their lives. That God looks at us as we mess things up, as we, as we destroy stuff, as we, as we just kind of throw things to the wind or we, we go in and make a wreck of our own lives. And God looks on us with pity, with this idea of saying, gosh, I, I know that's hard. I know you messed up about, on that thing. And he's not looking at you to smash you with a hammer. No, he's looking at you saying, I, I, know, I know you messed up, but I can fix it for you. I can put it back together. That's the amazing thing about God. Notice it says there also the third thing. It says you're a merciful God. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. This idea is the idea uh, throughout the New Testament. It's usually translated as long-suffering. And that, that's a, a great way to say it. Patience is the idea here. Uh, long-suffering is literally to suffer for a long time. That's, that's the concept here. Uh, that um, it is wrapped up within the slow to anger is that God doesn't have a bad temper. He doesn't fly off the handle. He's in complete control. That when God does bring his judgment, it's not like he's just raging out and he's, you know, just kind of lost it and, and then just throwing down, you know, smoke and fire from heaven or whatever. No, it's that God is completely in control, meeting out judgment as is necessary and appropriate. So he's slow to anger. He doesn't have a bad temper. He doesn't have a short fuse. The fourth thing we see here is that he is slow to anger. He's uh, abundant in loving kindness. Um, this, this idea is that God is steadfast. He's constant. He has a loyal kind of love. Here's the, here's the big idea behind this. You cannot influence the love of God in your life. Now, that, that's maybe for some of you, it's frustrating. You're like, but I did good things. I did nice stuff. Maybe for some of you, it's super comforting to know that the failures you have in your life don't influence God's love for you. That God loves you, not because of you, but because of him. 
It's very much like the way that I love my children, right? I don't love them because of them, because of what they've done for me or because of the, the stuff that they perform. I love them because I'm their dad, because that's the position that God has given me in their lives, that, that my love for them isn't based upon them. It's based upon who I am. It's based upon my character. And so much so and exceedingly more, God's love for you has nothing to do with you. It's not because you perform well for him. It's, you can't influence it the wrong way because you messed up and because you failed or because you didn't do the thing that you knew you were supposed to do. Instead, no, God's love for you is based on him, not you. Fifthly and finally, this final part that he says about God, he says, you are one who relents from doing harm. This is the idea of forgiving, that God doesn't hold a grudge, that, that God will accept anyone who will admit their sin. Anybody who's willing to admit their sin, that's who God will accept. If you'll admit your sin, if you'll abandon your sin, if you'll turn to him, then God will receive you. God will accept you. That's the amazing thing about God. See, the right time to repent, the right time to abandon sin is right now. The moment that you realize that you stepped into sinfulness, the moment you realize you've gone the wrong way, the moment you realize that your heart was off, that your attitude was wrong, that you said what you shouldn't have said, you've done what you shouldn't have done, that's the moment for repentance. That's the moment to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness. You don't need to go through the motions of beating yourself up for a certain period of time. You don't need to feel terrible for this certain period of time. And then you can come to God. No, it's in that very moment when you recognize that God is moving in you to say, hey, that was off, come back to me, that's the right time. That's when we turn to the Lord. Not only do we see, uh, firstly, Jonah's displeasure with God, Jonah's doctrine about God, secondly, but thirdly and finally, Jonah's dethroning of God. Look at verse three. Jonah says this, therefore, so the result of the prayer, the end is, therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now here's where Jonah's heart is fully revealed. We, we see his cards in this moment. You see, the central issue is uncovered. Jonah, yeah, he's mad at the situation. He's mad that he's even there, you know, in Nineveh. He's mad that the, the people of Nineveh have done what they've done and they're so sinful and evil. Uh, and, and mostly, though, he's mad at God. How could you, God? That's essentially what he's asking. How could you do this? this? This is so terrible. You see, Jonah, notice there, he says, uh, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord. Jonah calls God Lord, but the entire attitude and flavor of his prayer is demeaning toward God and demanding of him. See, Jonah, in his mind, he's Lord, not God. He's saying the right word. He's calling God the right thing but his attitude is completely off. Jonah's prayer is actually about himself and not about God. When you look through this verse, maybe you can, you can see it. You can look through his prayer uh, in verse two. Uh, he says, uh, so he prayed, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that, and then he switches now to God. You, your grace is merciful, and he says some things about God. And then he goes back to, in verse 3, Now, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The whole prayer is about Jonah. It's all about himself. Yes, he said some things about God, and he knew the right theological answers, but he's just, he's just, focused on himself. He references himself eight times in these two verses. 
over and over and over and over again. And he says, it's better for me to die. Essentially what he's saying here is that if God was going to let these vile, inhuman creatures live, then he didn't want to be on the same planet. These people are so terrible, I don't even want to be on the same planet as them. Jonah's prayer is to God, how could you do such a thing? David Guzik says it like this, Jonah himself called on the mercy of God and enjoyed the mercy of God while it was extended to Jonah. Now he resents it when it's extended to others. What if God treated Jonah the way Jonah wanted God to treat the people of Nineveh? Think about that. He's willing to receive God's goodness. He's willing to receive God's graciousness. He's willing to, to say, God, thank you for looking at my rebellion and not, you didn't, you didn't kill me. Remember his first prayer was, God, save me. Now this prayer is, God, kill me. He's just swinging really far on that pendulum going really far the other direction. Why? Because hatred has filled his, lot, his heart and because he has seated himself on the throne instead of allowing God to have that right place. But, but remember, keep this in mind, the Assyrians, like we said before, they were, you know, they were, they were very evil people. They weren't just like sometimes rude or cut people off in traffic or didn't let them over when they wanted to get over in traffic or whatever. The, these were the cruelest, most sadistic people in human history. I mean, they are so bad that uh, the Romans and the Nazis learned how to torture people from these people. That's where they got it from. You know the, the Roman crucifixion? The, I don't know if you've studied anything about how terrible that is. It came from the Assyrians. They started it, and the Romans perfected it. Um, the, the Nazis learned how to torture people from these Assyrians. The Assyrians were so terribly cruel. Like we said in our first study about the, the Assyrians, they, they learned how to skin people alive and they were, became so proficient at it, they could take all of the skin off of a person and they would still be alive. Like that is mind-blowingly evil. I can't even think about how terrible that, that is. They, they were so bad, their reputation was so bad that when they came to certain cities to, to lay siege against the city, many times all the people in the city would commit suicide because it was better than becoming a captive of the Assyrians. So this isn't like Jonah saying, man, these guys are so mean, they didn't throw me the football at the barbecue, right? That's, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. This is really, really terrible kind of things that are going on. But Jonah... He wants grace for himself and he wants justice for them. I tend to be the same way. You know, when we're measuring out grace, I want to give you a tablespoon and I want to give me an ocean. That's how I want it. I want, you deserve justice. You should, you should be, you know, taken care of by God for the wrongs in your life. But God, you know, just, I have a reason why I, I did that. And, you know, it really wasn't as bad. And that's just kind of the way we tend to view ourselves. I, I want for me to receive far, far less. You see, Jonah, he had a skewed view of all this. He hated them, and he believed they deserved hell. And the problem is that Jonah didn't deserve God's grace any more than they did, but he thought he deserved it. His religious mentality brought him into blind arrogance. That's what happened in the heart of Jonah. So notice what God says to him. Verse 4, Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? You see, this is an incredible moment. And it's incredible to me because, you know, I think that it would be 
pretty awesome if God just said, okay, you got it, boom, and just zapped him from existence. Like, okay, you're, you're obviously a jerk. You, I used you for the thing I wanted to use you for. Those people got saved. You're dead. There it is. But God doesn't even do that. It's tremendous that God doesn't do that. He, he actually looks at Jonah with grace. He responds to Jonah with incredible patience. This question that God asks him, it's a rhetorical question that demands a certain answer. Is it right for you to be angry? It's not even a question, right? That's what rhetorical questions are. Rhetorical questions are not questions. They are they're statements posed in the form of a question to get you to get to the right answer. God is graciously trying to lead Jonah away from himself. Get your eyes off yourself, Jonah. Stop looking at your situation. Stop thinking that you have it so bad. Stop thinking that those people are so terrible and and you know what they need in their lives. Instead, Jonah, look at how evil and rebellious your heart is before me. And let's deal with that issue. You see, everything Jonah said about God was right, but none of it was reflected in Jonah's character. What a wild idea. I mean, this is supposed to be the prophet of God, right? The, The one guy who is supposed to represent God to humanity. And this is his attitude. This is the way that he is. This is how he's interacting. He's supposed to be the man of God. And yet his character is so starkly different from God. You see, this section, it's a massive contrast between God and Jonah. And Jonah is drawn as sort of a caricature here. You know, you ever get a caricature where you go and you get them to draw you? And my wife and I, uh, a couple years ago, we were at Disneyland and we sat down at one of those caricatures and uh, they were like, all right, who do you want to be? I'm like, Captain America, you know? And so they draw my giant head on this little, you know, Captain America body. And uh, so anyway, we're, she, she, then Micah's like, you can't be the only captain. She's Captain Marvel, you know? And so anyway, so we have these caricatures, but they take your features. So my forehead on the, the thing is like most of the page, right? Because it's, I got a five head, not a forehead. And so they drew it pretty big. And, uh, but they, they over-exaggerate some of, the char- some of the characteristics in order to make them appear larger. That's kind of what's happening with Jonah. This, this is some really terrible things in Jonah being over-exaggerated so we can see how terrible these things are. And the truth is that when we see it in Jonah, don't we see it in ourselves? Don't you look at this and you go, man, that's terrible, Jonah. And I identify that with that way too much for my own comfort. That there's, there are issues within my heart. I, I'm actually Jonah. You see, the more we come to know God and the more we understand that he is utterly other, he is not like us. He's far greater than imagination. Here's how Isaiah 55 says it in verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, God gives us an example here to say, when you look into the vast expanse of space, which we know today, we can't even measure the edge of, God says, that's how far away the distance is from your ways versus my ways. Your thoughts versus my thoughts. Your ability versus my ability. We tend to sort of see God as like a man, like a person, and then judge him based on that. And the truth is, he's just not like that at all. He's so far bigger than we could ask 
or imagine. And the issue that Jonah is struggling with is what you and I struggle with. It's the, it's the answer to this question, who's Lord? Who's going to be Lord? Because in Jonah's heart, in this moment, it's not God. It's him. He's, he's dethroning the, the Lord God of the universe in order to seat himself there. And it's quite possible to know the right theological answer and still not have it affect your life. He says all of these tremendous things about God that are so mind-blowingly amazing, and yet none of it affects him. See, here's the issue. Jesus is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. You can't just know the right words and pass the test. Because you can pass the test technically and still fail in terms of relationships. Skip, Skip Isaac says it like this. When he is the Lord, then your concern is his expectations of you. What is his will? What's his desire? What does he want from me? When he's not Lord, but your Lord, you've got some expectations of him. And frankly, if he doesn't pull through on your timetable, you're going to be mad at him. When we're mad at God, when we're frustrated with God, when, when he doesn't do what we thought he should do, the issue is lordship. The issue is I have somehow put myself where he belongs. And now he's not coming through in the way that I think he should come through. You see, the difference between knowing informationally and knowing experientially is the, the same thing as the distance between heaven and hell. It's 18 inches. It's, it's not just knowing the right answers in your head. It's actually letting that affect your heart. Letting that affect who you are. You can, you can check all the boxes and you can say, yeah, Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross for my sins and, and he rose from, the dead on the third, rose from the dead on the third day and still go to hell because it never affected your heart. You just knew the right answers. You just knew the right the, theological boxes to check. We, we have to be a people who know the Lord. So here's the question. Do you know the Lord? Is it just a, a head thing? Is it just a head knowledge? It, has, it affects none of your life. Your decision making, the way you raise your kids, the way you spend your money, the way you treat your spouse, the way you even think about getting a spouse if you're single. How does all of that affect the way you go to work? Does the gospel affect your life? That's how you know that you know God when he's actually living his life through you. You see, it's not great knowledge. It's not great spiritual uh, giftedness. It's the love of God being poured into your lives and out of you. That's how you know that God has you. It's the love of God. So I pray that if you haven't submitted your life to Jesus, that right now would be the right time. You can just cry out to him and say, God, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you receive me as your own? And he absolutely will. We just read it. God is one who relents from doing harm. He's willing to receive anyone who will come to him, whether it's the first time or it's the 10,000th time. Right now is the right time to repent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to think upon it. We thank you for showing us so amazingly who you are. God, that you are so far above us. And we pray that you would help us, God, in those moments where we try to dethrone you and push you out of, out of your rightful place as Lord, as God, and we try to seat ourselves in a position that doesn't belong to us. God, would you give us the humility to understand it, and by your grace, would you allow us to put our faith in you? And so, God, we turn to you now, thanking you for your love. We pray that you'd be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.